Hello and welcome to Image Method. This is a show about making moving images and this is an enhanced podcast, meaning that images we talk about can be seen as album artwork in iTunes. Or you can play the downloaded file in QuickTime, which is a free program from Apple. You can also see the images on the Image Method blog at imagemethod.blogspot.com. Complete show notes and contact information um, and everything including past shows, the whole shebang, is at imagemethod.blogspot.com. On this episode, we are talking about the liberating power of photography and the roles that images and image making play in our understanding of identity, history, and struggle. Matthew Castle is a documentary photographer who started a project to teach photography to young people in one of the densest refugee camps in the Israeli-occupied territories. The camp is called Balata. His project is called Picture Balata, and he is our guest on Image Method. Matthew Castle, thank you for being on my show today. You're welcome. So tell me, how did you get this program, Picture Balata, started? Well, in the summer of um, 06, I went back to, to Palestine. I had the idea before going that time and found a friend in the camp who um, I'd worked with in the past on different things. And, and we talked about this idea of starting a, a project teaching photography to, to youth in the camp. We had one digital camera. I had, my, I had my camera and I had another camera that I bought for the purpose of, of leaving with, with the youth to use. And, um, you know, we went around and we found nine youth from the camp. Some of them my friend had worked with previously on, the, like, a film project. So they had a little bit of uh, media or film experience. But about five or six of them, you know, we just went around. We went door to door to some places and found, you know, families who were willing to allow their kids to take part in a, in a project like this. There's 25,000 people in the camp and half of them are kids and there's really little going on for them in the camp so um, you know it's a good opportunity for to for them to do something productive how would you describe the children of Balata they're crazy <laughs> like any kids I mean you put you put that many kids in one place like that close together and all the neighbors have five kids or six or seven kids in their family so everyone's running around the streets you know and you have kids like on a normal street in the US there would be like five kids out on the street you know like roughhousing with each other or playing games or chasing after each other it's pretty much the same exact thing there, except a lot more kids in one place. What do you think teaching these kids photography does for them? Well, I mean, also you have to think about like the situation there. These kids are living through an occupation in Balata and in, in uh, the Palestinian territories where soldiers, Israeli soldiers, are invading the camp. In Balata, it's one of the worst places in the West Bank in terms of invasions, and now you see up to five invasions during a week where these kids are lying awake at night listening to shooting, listening to bombs going off, to bulldozers, to army jeeps and all that stuff. So obviously they've been troubled by that. All these kids know, know people who have been imprisoned, um, have at least a few people in their immediate families who have been imprisoned. They know people who have been killed. They've seen all this too. They've seen people getting arrested by the Israeli army. They've seen people getting killed. So, I mean, they've been through a lot of stuff in their short, short lives. Um, photography gives them a way to express themselves and to tell you know other people about what they've seen and about what they're going through but photography is great because anyone can look at a picture and anyone can understand it it doesn't matter where you come from doesn't matter what language you speak how do you think this teaching work affects your own work 
I mean, you're working as an assistant editor for Electronic Intifada, mm -hmm. and uh, your work is a documentary in the documentary field. Mm -hmm. um, how do you feel like this kind of work with this specific community, I mean, youngsters in Palestine, in the Balata camp, mm -hmm. how, do, how does that affect your own work, either in picture editing or in picture making? Well, I started the project and I, I felt it was important to teach kids this project because initially when I had lived in Palestine for a year previous to starting this project, I um, did a lot of my own photography, tons of it. And, you know, for the year I was there, I, I shot like crazy and I came back, I did a lot of exhibitions, I have a website up. And um, people would, would ask, how do the people feel in these pictures or what's going on in these pictures, you know? And it's something hard for me as an American to really go to Palestine. And I, I was kind of naive at first thinking I could go there and better understand the situation. But the reality is I can never fully understand the situation there because I'm an American. Because I go there with an American passport, I can fly in and fly out whenever I want to. When I wait at an Israeli checkpoint with dozens of Palestinians in line, I can budge ahead, budge ahead of all of them, cut in front of the line and pass if I want to, whereas they might be forced to wait for hours. Um, I've never lost any of my friends or family to, to the situation there. Um, I haven't seen my homes invaded, you know, on, on a nightly basis. For me, this project was to to give these people, especially these young people, who are the most familiar with th this situation. I mean, it's their situation. It's not my situation. To give them the tools to express themselves and talk about their lives and about their situation. So, how does it affect my work? I mean, like. I've, I've stepped back from taking pictures and I actually prefer this. I mean, because documentary photography for me is about telling a story and getting a story out there as best as I can. And I had focused a lot on my, with my documentary photography on Palestine, but I can't get a story out there as good as, as, uh, as one of these kids can just because it's not my situation, it's not my life. That's really true in the fact that they have a position as children and residents of the camp and a perspective that we as incoming trained photographers could never get. Exactly. I've noticed in, in all the pictures one thing that I really like is a good a great deal of them, especially by the younger kids, are taken from this four and a half foot camera height. Mm -hmm. You know, and they, they take so many great pictures of the of the other children. Mm -hmm. Um let's see, let's look at some of these pictures. Where was the one that had such amazing I think it was Doha. Yeah, I mean, she's, she's, she's only 11 years old, so she's probably four foot tall. She's tiny. Doha's work is just so um, captivating just because she's uh, familiar to them. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about Doha and her work? I mean, yeah, she, if you look at it, it's kids roughly around her age, maybe 10, 11, 12, 13, something like that. Like I said, she's 11. So she just runs up to these kids, and they, um, they're kids her age, and she identifies with them, and... You know, they run up to her, Doha, what are you doing with that camera? And she's like, shut up, I'm going to take your picture, you know? And they just, like, do their thing. And they're comfortable with her. They're not, you know, it's not like a, a white foreign guy or an adult even taking their picture. So they're just doing their thing. And, you know, it's Doha, it's their friend, it's their uh, their classmate or whatever who's, like, you know, messing around with them. So, What do you think it means to these kids to be in these pictures? I mean, kids love, I think anyone loves the idea of like getting a picture taken and becoming famous on some level. I, I don't know if like these kids, some of them you can see when they're doing that, you know, like they're posing a little bit, acting like movie stars or something. Oh, you want to take my picture here? Let me pose and put my hand on the wall and mm -hmm. put in, you know, a cute face on or whatever. You know, and some of the kids like uh, the girl in the alleyway, you know, like it's nighttime and she's not posing really. She's just kind of caught off guard like it's nighttime and you're coming at me with this camera. What's that? I think that might actually be like her cousin or something. 
But I don't know. I mean, they're just kids and they're just playing around and it's nice to, to have your picture taken sometimes and kids kind of enjoy it more than adults, whereas adults are, you know, thinking, well, what are you going to do with this picture? Where's it? And I've had adults ask me that a lot, you know, when I want to take their picture over there, like, what are you going to do with this picture? Where's it going to go? Which newspaper is it going to be in? But the kids aren't thinking that, you know, they're just, they're just playing around and messing around with their friends and there's, who's got a camera. It's funny how that moment and that intention becomes a real important part of how people make the pictures. Like the subjects want to know what's going to happen to it. And I guess that's a good thing, but it's a funny state of innocence when you see the kids uh, doing, mm -hmm. you know, just reacting in a completely naive way toward it. Can you talk about people like to pose with things in a lot of these pictures? And I'm looking at a picture that Doha took with a, a boy posing alongside a painting on a wall. Can you talk about that picture at all? Mm -hmm. Well, that's the Dome of the Rock there, um, which is kind of, it's a, for, for Muslims, it's the third most holiest site in the world. And for Palestinians, it's very important because it's in Jerusalem, which is, uh, you know, the, the capital of Palestine and, and something at the core of the, the conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and it's also something that Palestinians cannot see. Uh, most of the people from Balata have never gone to Al-Aqsa, the Dome of the Rock, because they're not allowed to. Um, the Israeli checkpoints and the Israeli army don't allow for that to happen. So they have like paintings of these uh, holy sites, you know, around the camp. Uh, they have paintings of Mecca too, for instance. But um, like, here's just one of the symbol of the Palestinian capital, you know, it's like the White House almost. It's like the White House of, you know, of, of Palestine. And here's someone, you know, like posing with this with the symbol of Palestine, you know, like here's me with the Dome of the Rock. They know, maybe they, maybe they know, like they, well, of course they know they haven't seen it, and maybe they like think they won't be able to see it, you know. And this is kind of like the closest they can get to it is like an image of it. Exactly. So, you know, in the in the way that so many of us have been to so many great wonders of the world, such as the Grand Canyon or the mm -hmm. Eiffel Tower. You know, this little boy posing by what is a drawing, graffiti on a wall of this holy site and the idea that this is as close as he can get to having this great uh, place of worship and tourist attraction, you know, to be able to stand in front of it. This is how his, it's a funny kind of sadness to this. Yeah. You know, maybe now would be a good time to um, talk about the camp. Now, as I understand it, uh, Balata is it's one of the densest places on the earth. What's it like there? Um, it's hard for them to even like the UN who registers all the people in the camp and does all that. It's hard for them to uh, <clears throat> say exactly like how big it is and how many people live there because it's kind of growing and it's weird. But um, yeah, it's about one to two square kilometers less than that, um, and twenty-five thousand people. And it is the most overcrowded or the most densest place in the in the West Bank. Um, and the city is also surrounded by checkpoints. Is that, is that right? So it's just, it's just there's a ring of checkpoints around the uh, camp. Around Nablus, there's a there's a ring of checkpoints. There's maybe like any direction you go, you can't go more than ten minutes without running into an Israeli checkpoint. So Balata's within that ring, and now you know it's just a it's just a very cramped. I mean, if the neighbor's baby is sick, you're gonna know it because you can hear the baby crying all night. You know, even houses away, and you can hear very private things in people's lives that I don't feel I have to mention, you know, just like you can hear it just because everything is so close. You're walking down the down the street at night in one of the tiny alleyways and you know it's about maybe three feet wide, maybe even less, and you know, you can you hear people and it's just a very tight, overcrowded plot of land that these people have been, you know, and these people are 
historically uh, peasants and farmers who who lived off their land for for centuries and they've been kind of forced into this to this camp and even butch um, Muhammad aka butch mm-hmm. his uh, nickname is butch one of my favorite pictures of his is you know the man walking the uh, the the goats through the camp because that's like that describes you know this this man is his grandfather probably farmers like this who raised goats and now he's in this refugee camp that's completely concrete there's no grass you have to walk like maybe 15 minutes outside the camp to get to any grass to let the the uh, goats graze you know he's still doing it in the camp and these people are still like living their mm-hmm. their farmer lifestyle in the camp i mean they're still like taking care of cows and goats and chickens and all that i really love butch's work his focus was workers of balata and uh, he's got a lot of great portraits of men at at work here, and that you know that's such a part of the fiber of any society and any community mm. is is how the work gets done and how people earn their livings. And I, I think, I think in general, it's great to see these images. I don't even know what the occupations of these people are, but it, it's great to see. Um, you know just how the stuff gets done in a community and have right. that documented from someone on the inside here. Well, they've they've all got the same occupation, that being the Israeli one. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, they all do whatever they can. Like people, whatever weird, random job you can think of. I mean, people are doing it. Like, I mean, it's just it's it's a working class, very working class place, and you know, like people are people are making doors or gated fences or something like that. Um, you know, this guy, one guy sitting at the desk is. Uh, produces uh frozen vegetables you know like frozen bags of of peas and carrots and he you know like everyone there i mean they used to because it's from the refugee camp um because they're from the refugee camp they they don't own land anymore usually uh, for the most part they lost all their land when they were forced from their homes in 1948 so i mean they don't own land. They can't, you know, sustain themselves and their work from, from having land like they once had. So a lot of them, before this intifada, were working inside Israel, where they were basically, you know, like immigrant workers in Israel, where they, you know, ship them in seasonally sometimes or every day because it's so close together. I mean, so they come in, get paid. They didn't have to, you know, pay a minimum wage or anything like that. They just pay them a few bucks, ten bucks a day, which is decent money considering the economy in the refugee camp. But then once the uh, Intifada started, they cut all that off. So, you know, like here are some of the jobs, but the reality is like most people, maybe half the people in the camp are unemployed or something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and I mean, now you just have people doing whatever they can. Taxi drivers too, like Taha shoots. I mean, that's like a huge thing. There's an overabundance of taxi drivers, you know. Right. <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous how many taxi drivers there are. But, you know, like that's one of the only things you can do. I mean... Mm-hmm. Several of these kids have chosen specific subjects to point their cameras at. I'm wondering how, what the discussions were like when you were trying to get the kids to understand that um, having a focus was a way to really figure out what was important to them. What was that like when you were sort of doing that instruction? Like any kids, you know, they, when they started out going, going around with the cameras, they just wanted to take pictures of everything they saw, their friends, pretty flowers, something like that. But we talked to them. First of all, we, we, we asked them, we, we asked a lot more questions than we told, gave answers, you know, but uh, we asked them, um, you know, what issues are important for you in the camp? Taha, for instance, said taxi drivers, you know, because he's a taxi driver himself being only 15 or 16 now. Um, his father owns some taxis, whatever. 
and you see a lot of these taxi drivers and like I was just saying it's one of the only jobs you can get in a camp and a lot of people a lot of these taxi drivers they have degrees in engineering or chemistry or something like that and they're forced to do drive taxis around because it's only work they have so I mean that was an important issue for him to tell their stories and you know we talked about how to do that you know how you know every week he would go out and shoot some more pictures and he'd come back with some more and we'd, you know maybe he only wanted to show the picture one certain kind of picture like the the taxi driver hanging out of his car window or something like that but you know like helped him okay why don't you give us a little bit of a perspective as to where these where these cars are in the camp in relation to the camp and all that stuff and they they did that i mean like every every person's got their own thing and it's all personal for them i mean they have a personal story or or something or reason for why they why they chose those those subjects do you think photography has helped you find out what's important to you i'm a very visual learner and um I mean, from from a young age, like photographs have always had a, a, a had a deep impact on me. I mean, like ra raised Jewish, I was shown a lot of uh, images from the Holocaust, and you know, at a young age, like seeing seeing images of the Holocaust and being told that had I been a European boy or a German boy, like where my family comes from, or a Polish boy, you know, living in that time, that could have been me, and I would have been killed. And you know, like that right there, that was the connection for me to the photograph, and it like meant a lot for me, and I was able to. To identify with the boy and connect with the photograph and it you know it taught me a lot about injustice and taught me a lot about the holocaust and you know just seeing like growing up and seeing vietnam imagery and you know seeing teenagers fighting in vietnam and all that stuff i think photos can be can be very powerful it's, it's an important way to to communicate something especially because it goes across all all languages you don't need to to translate a photograph um, you know anyone can understand that i think it's very very important and like seeing these kids photographs is really it's nice, you know, like, because I'm like, I went to photography school, I'm seeing all the professional photographers, I worked with a big photo agency for a little bit in Paris, and like, you know, just seeing like these kids going out, you know, with a new perspective and just like a new energy, like really makes, gives me hope and like, you know, I don't know, refreshes me on the, on the subject and makes me want to teach these kids more, you know, because they're great and their photographs are great and they don't have to be so trained to take the beautiful photograph. It, it seems to me that this is a, a cyclical phenomenon happening here where the experience that you had in your youth of having learned from photographs some part of um, an issue related to your own identity mm. um, is what you're also facilitating for these kids. And it seems like, you know, speaking of a cyclical phenomenon, this idea of making pictures, I've noticed a lot of the pictures are pictures of other pictures, and I'm referring to specifically the the martyr posters um, and the images that seem to be everywhere in the camp. Judging on these photos by Tahrir, who seem to shoot a lot of these these other posters, so I was intrigued by this notion of pictures of pictures and how pictures or images function when they're being displayed or consumed or viewed. By uh, society, especially you know, a as here. So what you see is people posing with pictures, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, you know you see pictures hung around the street. You know what you're doing that's cyclical is teaching these kids to make the pictures. So media and recycled media is part of it. So recreating what's important as an image, if it can't be existent in real life, seem to be a part of how these people sort of experience things that are important to them. Yeah, I mean these these 
these pictures, the posters of the martyrs and the people killed from the occupation are a very important piece of the camp and they like to honor the people who have been killed with these, with their photographs and they put them all around the camp. So it's, it's definitely important for, for Palestinians, these pictures of people and it's these kids, you know, grow up with them all around the camp. They're everywhere. They have them in their homes. They have them on the streets. And yeah, it's important to take pictures of them too. I mean, because people aren't going to see those pictures unless you take a picture of it and put it out there for people to see and, you know, to see the context of it, like to see the the baby boy. Like maybe if you saw that on BBC or, you know, mainstream press, you just see a picture of the, a picture of the martyr poster and a guy with a gun without getting any context. And I think that's a big problem with the lack of understanding in this issue is you never get any context when you hear about the Palestinian side of things. But, you know, this boy is sitting here with a picture. He's sitting there with a picture of his, uh, of two men. One of them is his uncle and one of them is his father who was killed only a month before that, or actually two weeks before that picture was taken. So. I, I love this picture because it just seems to me that for someone to make a picture like this, the adult men are gone. They're dead. So in the way that we always take pictures of our families and so-called family pictures, mm. because so much death is a part of these families, a family picture becomes a picture of a living person with, uh, uh, you know, whatever they have left of the dead people. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's funny how this version here of a family picture is what it seems so common here. Many of these photos are people posing with pictures of the dead. So pictures are kind of functioning as this cycle of remembrance. And your project is continuing that cycle and sort of teaching how and training to re-remember and re-memorialize these things. So you're, there's a lot of cycling going on in this project where people can kind of create the identities of their family, their history, their memories as photography, as a photography as a process. So I think that's really interesting. I love this picture of the baby with the, with the photo on the couch like that. That's father. Yeah. yeah, I never thought about it way, I guess. To me, it was a very interesting part of the process, this photography of other photo imagery it's not some it's not something we do in this culture but you know now that i think about it like i i have a lot of respect and love for my uh for my grandfather who passed a few years ago and i would love anything to like have a picture you know with him at some point you know like you know if there was a nice portrait of him i probably would would actually like to sit next to a, a portrait of him and have a picture like that to <clears throat> remember and honor him and like have that connection in a photograph with us so I could keep it forever, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. it's a nice thing. And I think that's what these kids are doing. You know, they love and respect these family members who have passed, who have been killed, and they're, they're showing their respect and they want a picture of them to, to remember that. When you were there, you basically founded this educational program with one point-and-shoot camera, and eventually you took some of your students around to a multi-city tour and raised a bunch of money out of, in a grassroots way, from um, donations from these, these uh, events you were having. And you had an event in, let's see, in Boston, in Cambridge rather, and in New York, Chicago, you know, other cities as well. What is the next move for this project? We're going to now... Um I try to make the pr program a little bit more official. We want to make it sustainable. We also want it to be Palestinian-led um, because you have a lot of these projects happening in, in Palestine where 
internationals like myself, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm different than this, but you know, like internationals will come over and they'll start a project and they'll leave and the project will fall apart. Well, with this one, we want to make it Palestinian-led. We want to give Pal the, the Palestinians the, the tools and the resources to, to uh, continue the, the project. You know, there's, there's plenty of Palestinian professionals, you know, like that kind of thing. Like we're going to get professionals to come and teach and, you know, teach the kids what they know and help them in, in photography, in writing, in English, creative writing, and journalism, like that stuff. And if people want to find out more about this project, Picture Balata, and maybe support it by donating or anything, how could they find out more about this? They can contact us at picturebalata at gmail.com. Um, it's also our website, picturebalata.net. That's picture, P-I-C-T-U-R-E, Balata, B-A-L-A-T-A, -A -A, all one word, um, .net. Excellent. So, I uh, really appreciate you coming down. I really appreciate, since I am a teacher myself, I really appreciate that you made the connection that teaching photography is actually still photography itself. Mm -hmm. And that uh, if you're making photographers who are doing good work, then you're also um, part of the photographic system. So, I really uh, appreciate learning that from you, and I really want to uh, thank you for being on the show. Cool, yeah, photography is awesome. I love it. I can look at pictures all day for the rest of my life, but <laughs> thanks, TW. Matthew Castle's project is called Picture Balata, and it can be found along with all of the images, links, and other stuff that came up during our conversation at our blog, which is at imagemethod.blogspot.com. This episode's totally well-known trade secret comes from a conversation I had with the great documentary photographer Eugene Richards. I asked Mr. Richards how he earned the trust of his subjects, and he told me this. Never try to fit in. Always just be who you are, a documentarian with a job to do. Words to the wise. Being true to yourself will never go out of style. If you don't know the work of Gene Richards, we will have links to his images and other information about Gene in our blog at imagemethod.blogspot.com. If you like the show, tell your friends, please, and be sure to subscribe via iTunes or whatever program you're using. This is an enhanced podcast, so the images are album artwork in iTunes, and you can also play the downloaded file uh, in QuickTime. As usual, all the show notes will be at imagemethod.blogspot.com. If you have any comments or suggestions for us, please send us an email at imagemethod at gmail.com. Or you can phone us with your good old-fashioned telephone and vocal cords at 206-350-3652. All of this will be at imagemethod.blogspot.com. Thank you for all the positive feedback we've been getting. We really appreciate that. I'm TW, and thanks for tuning in to Image Method.